Welcome to the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast, where we discuss and provide solutions to some of the pressing social and economic issues of this era. I'm Fred Olayale, your host. A fundamental failure of the current global economic system lies in its inability to explain or correct the inequitable and often arbitrary distribution of wealth and income. Clearly, the pitfalls of capitalism are littered all around us. But it is difficult to deny the improvements in standards of living and the impact of the innovations that the capitalist mode of wealth creation has brought to our lives. This podcast is about unpacking many of the conundrums and very naughty issues on how to move the needle to ensure a more sustainable and resilient global economy. Our topic today is an important one. We are gonna be looking at trade policy broadly under the specific topic, trade, supply chains, and inclusive development. Clearly, a strong global trading system remains an essential driver of growth and development. And despite the rise of our protectionism and trade tensions across the world in recent times, the argument for deepening economic integration remains compelling. More so, recent supply chain disruptions due to the COVID-19 pandemic have reinforced the importance of trade in the global uh, economic system. And while the pandemic is an exogenous shock, it has disrupted economic systems with disproportionate impact on marginalized populations. So trade policy in the post-pandemic economy must improve the lot of vulnerable groups, whether low-income earners, women, youth, and micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. To help us make sense of these things, my guest on today's episode is a distinguished trade policy expert with an impressive track record in the field of international trade, investment, diplomacy, and development. I have with me today Annabel Gonzalez, the Deputy Director General of the World Trade Organization in Switzerland, a renowned global expert on trade, investment, and economic development. Annabelle was a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, a former senior director of the World Bank's Global Practice on Trade and Competitiveness. She led the bank's agenda on trade, investment, climate, competitiveness, innovation, and entrepreneurship to expand market opportunities, enable private initiative, and develop dynamic economies. She previously served as Minister of Trade 
for Costa Rica. Annabelle holds a master's degree in international trade law and policy from Georgetown University and a law degree from the University of Costa Rica. Welcome, Annabelle. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Fred, for that warm introduction. And uh, I'm delighted to be here with you and your audience. Thank you so much. And now let's, uh, let's unpack this. And let me start with uh, multilateralism and the changing global order. After five years or so of retreat from globalization, free trade and increased protectionism, the global order appears to be gradually catching up, at least in the context of uh, global alliances and uh, multilateral cooperation that shaped much of the liberal uh, international order since uh, post-World War II era. But yet again, with the pandemic, protectionism and uh, trade restrictive measures have increased dramatically. So when you look at the growth of uh, regionalism, the global shift in power and ideas, and the proliferation of non-state actors, all of these things, you know, bring to bear what is uh, in the offing. So, so the question is, uh, what do you make of all of this? I'm interested in your perspective. So you made uh, one very uh, important uh, comment, uh, Fred, which is that, uh, you know, have protectionism and trade restrictive measures uh, increased dramatically with the pandemic. Um, and uh, while, of course, we are seeing that the global trade landscape is changing very rapidly, uh, driven by geopolitical competition, technology, the pandemic itself, uh, climate change, and, 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 and other factors. What is interesting is that during the pandemic, while we did see an increase in trade restrictive uh, measures, we have also seen many governments take many trade facilitating measures to deal with the pandemic's uh, fallout. At the WTO, we monitor these developments uh, closely. And our latest uh, report uh, shows that since the outbreak of the pandemic, close to 400 COVID-19 trade and trade related measures in goods have been implemented. Of these 400 measures, uh, 262 of them, that is 60, 66%, were of a trade facilitating nature. And 137, that is 34% of the measures, were considered trade restrictive. What's more, the total value of trade covered by the trade facilitating measures that are still in place exceeds the value of trade covered by the trade restrictive measures. So the overall picture is better than what many people expected uh, when the pandemic first uh, struck, when many, you know, including myself, were worried um, you know, that the rush to secure essential supplies would lead to successive rounds of protectionist uh, beggar thy neighbor uh, policies. But what we saw was quite removed from this uh, worst case uh, scenario. Uh, as more supplies of essential goods became available, governments started to take steps 
to speed up and expand trade in many COVID-19 uh, products. So, you know, some governments eliminated tariffs, other digitalized uh, customs procedures, introduced green lanes for these medical uh, products. Uh, and in the same, in a similar vein, uh, you know, after initial uh, restrictions, governments have gradually began to roll back uh, some of those uh, restrictions. Now, all this helped markets broadly, you know, open, um, keep markets broadly open and supply of essential goods uh, moving. And it's very interesting, you know, when, when we're looking at the data, uh, you know, the value of trading medical goods rose by 16% in 2020. Uh, and, you know, in this case, for instance, of things that were so critical in the, in the beginning of the pandemic and that, you know, supplies were so limited, after the initial month, uh, you know, trade grew by 80% uh, for face masks and for ventilators and 44% for test kits. So clearly, you know, trade has been an essential element uh, to be able to, um, to fight the pandemic. Um, take vaccines, for example, even if we still have problems, important problems with vaccine equity, the reality is that the world has manufactured more than 11 billion COVID-19 vaccines, thanks to the possibility of accessing inputs that are in every part of the world. And this, this um, manufacturing of vaccines has been concentrated in a number of, uh, of uh, countries and regions. And it is thanks to trade that many parts of the world, uh, people have access to vaccines. So, you know, while it is true that, you know, there, there is, uh, reorientation that you can see in some major players, uh, you know, uh, growing economic nationalism and technological and economic rivalry between blocks. The reality is that trade has continued uh, to increase uh, and that trade has been a critical element in fighting the pandemic. Um, excellent. That's a, a very good response. I mean, that. Uh touches on many of the aspects. But if I may quickly pick one major uh, issue that you mentioned, uh, vaccine uh, equity, you know, I know that's a big issue in the current environment, you know, and uh, a lot of pundits and analysts and uh, policymakers, you know, have uh, varying perspectives. But I'm interested in uh, your perspective from um, a global ramification perspective, you know, for the WTO. Mm -hmm. You have a proliferation of sort of non-state actors. Regionalism is on the rise. What is the WTO doing? Do you have a position on vaccine equity and how to ensure that this pandemic, you know, is uh, brought to a close as quickly as uh, possible? So let me start by saying, Fred, that uh, you know innovation and uh, research and science did a fantastic job uh, developing a vaccine in a relatively short uh, time period for you know for a pandemic that of course uh, no one knew in the beginning what this was all about. Uh, so that was really an amazing uh, an amazing job. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, to move from innovation to ramping up manufacturing capacity to be able to serve the world, um, that took a bit of time. And uh, most importantly, there was a failure in global cooperation to make sure 
that everyone across the world, and starting with those that needed it the most, uh, the frontline workers, for example, in every country would have access to the vaccine. So there was clearly um, a you know, vaccine inequity uh, that, uh, that was not only, I would say, you know, a moral, moral failure, if you wish, uh, but also, um, you know, a, a uh, short-sightedness from the economic perspective, because we know, and you know, it is frequently said that, you know, no one will be safe until everyone is safe. And we have seen this because new variants uh, can come about, uh, particularly in non-vaccinated populations. So getting vaccines to everyone across the world is, you know, is clearly a priority from many uh, perspectives. Now, what's, and, and we still are not there yet. Last time I checked, uh, in Africa, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, only about 10% of the populations uh, were, uh, have been vaccinated. This has been increasing, but clearly we are far away from the numbers that we see in other parts of the world, of, you know, 60, 70% of populations vaccinated. Now, we have a goal working with the World Health Organization, the World Bank, uh, the IMF and the WTO, uh, we have a goal uh, to uh, have 70% of the world uh, population vaccinated uh, by uh, mid this year. Uh, and I think that, you know, there is important progress uh, being made. Not only are vaccine manufacturers ramping up their capacity quite significant, uh, but they've also uh, been moving clearly with the distribution and with a part that is also quite challenging, which is sort of like the last mile uh, and getting you know, vaccines into people's uh, arms. But having said this, I think this is a very important lesson from, from this pandemic that we must learn from it uh, and make sure that when other pandemics come, because we know they, they will, um, this does not uh, happen, uh, which is that you know, providing for equitable access since the beginning is absolutely critical, again, from a moral standpoint, but also to be able to fight uh, the pandemic. And this requires uh, diversifying manufacturing capacity that so that it is not only concentrated, you know, in a few countries or in a few regions, but that in every region, there is a possibility of, you know, of having this um, manufacturing capacity of producing uh, the vaccines rapidly uh, sort of responding uh, to a pandemic so that populations across the world can have access to, to the vaccine, but you could also make the same case um, for di diagnostics and therapeutics that are also uh, part of a comprehensive response to the pandemic. Wow, uh, very well said, very well said. Thanks for that uh, broad um, uh, coverage. You know, at the end of the day, I think the issues around uh, inclusivity, you know, you touched on a lot of those and it remains to be seen, you know, how the next um, year um, unfolds. But thank you for that. And that leads me to the next question, which is uh, looking at the uh, implications, you know, for micro, small, and medium sized uh, enterprises. As you know, that's a unique uh, cohort when you look at the whole uh, equation. And the the literature, you know, on the vulnerability of MSMEs is very robust in the context of um, capacity, uh, technical and uh, financial constraints. I mean, these factors have implications for their operational resilience, you know, in the context of market diversification 
and the ability to weather regional and global uh, economic shocks. And no doubt, trade facilitation is very key here, you know. So the question really is based on your decades of work and your track record in policy, diplomacy, and uh, development. How important is trade facilitation in mitigating the adverse impact of the supply chain disruptions heralded by the pandemic, particularly for MSMEs? I'm really interested in your, in your view. So Fred, I think you touch upon a critical issue. Uh, you know, across the world, 90% uh, of firms are small and medium-sized uh, enterprise. So clearly this is a topic of great interest uh, to, to many countries. And I think here, trade facilitation has a, a, a key role to play in mitigating the impacts of uh, current supply chain disruptions. Uh, lowering trade costs by simplifying and streamlining import and export procedures can help businesses offset the increase in cost due to the sharp increase in freight uh, rates. Now, it is true that in January this year, you know, some of those rates were up more than seven times uh, on average uh, pre-pandemic levels. And as a result, we know they have become important drivers of, uh, of inflation. But coming back to the issue of trade facilitation, uh, while this has been very important, I think that, you know, it can and must play a much larger role in efforts by governments, business, uh, transport and logistic companies, ports and others to strengthen the resilience of supply chains in the future. We know that current supply chain disruptions are being driven by many factors, including a surge in uh, demand for goods as consumer spending shifted uh, from services during the pandemic, an explosion in online sales, uh, COVID-19 induced uh, you know, port, uh, port uh, congestions um, and others. And some of this may be temporary, but others such as for example, the surge in uh, electronic commerce, which is a very positive surge may prove permanent, highlighting the need to build more resilient supply chains in going forward. And here, trade facilitation is a very powerful tool uh, to achieve uh, this goal because it can be a stepping stone to greater coordination and exchange of data across the supply chain. To, it can foster you know, increased use of technology and automation uh, by customs agencies, logistics firms, ocean carriers, warehouses, and other supply chain participants, uh, more widespread reliance on paperless trade, all of which are critical ingredients to build more agile, flexible, and resilient supply chains. And this, of course, uh, is, is even more important for small firms who do not have either the resources or the bandwidth uh, you know, to be de dealing with all of these complex uh, processes and procedures. So, and in the here in the WTO, we have a trade facilitation agreement uh, that aims precisely uh, as that uh, at uh, reducing trade costs, uh, which will benefit all firms, but in particular, small and medium-sized developing firms. In going forward, um, we continue to support the implementation of uh, trade facilitation measures in all countries uh, through technical assistance and capacity building measures. Uh, but we need to do more um, because I think the pandemic has shown uh, that reducing trade costs is absolutely critical if we want to have a more inclusive trade environment. Well, uh, 
Uh, brilliant, brilliant. You again touched on many important aspects, you know, data exchange, logistics, agility, you know, I think those are very uh, fundamental, you know, for the rebound and to ensure again a more uh, inclusive um, outcome. But still talking about uh, inclusive uh, development and again ensuring that uh, those at the lower end of the income ladder, you know, that they can really participate, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I would like to uh, ask you, you know, what do you think your submission, what you just said, you know, that extends largely to other vulnerable groups, you know, that are overrepresented in the MSME sector. I mean, when you talk about micro, small, medium-sized enterprises, we know the actors that are most likely to be players in that sector, you know. So the question here is, what does this mean for minimizing economic vulnerability for historically disadvantaged populations like low-income earners, mm -hmm. women, and youth? Those three demographics, you know, what do you think all of this mean for them? So, you know, Fred, that historically uh, disadvantaged populations are often disconnected from global, regional, or even local markets uh, and face much higher trade costs. Uh, and these pockets of disadvantage are often concentrated in geographic areas that are poorly connected uh, to active economic centers within and between countries. They often, often lack uh, good connections to financial, economic, information, and infrastructure networks too. And as a result, firms, people, and communities in these areas miss opportunities to develop skilled, competitive workforces. They're not integrated in global production chain and are less able to diversify their products and skills, leaving them vulnerable to shocks. So a more inclusive approach in trade policy making must therefore focus, in my view, on reducing trade costs faced by historically disadvantaged uh, groups. And there's no silver bullet for sure. And to make a real difference, trade policy must work in concert with a broad range of other trade policies, many of which are of a domestic nature for sure. Uh, if you think about uh, skills development, different structure and uh, others, but a comprehensive you know, um, trade reform package to lower trade costs would include trade facilitation measures, also deeper trade liberalization, efforts to streamline trade processes and clearance requirements, better transport infrastructure, more competition in domestic logistics, retail and wholesale trade, and less corruption as well. The WTO has a key role to play in many of these areas, from negotiations to reduce tariffs and other trade barriers to the implementation of this agreement that I was referring to, the trade facilitation agreement. And interestingly, the WTO has for several years now uh, implement, has been implementing uh, an aid for trade program where, you know, we basically, the WTO is not it's not a, a, an a organization with financial resources, but we play a key role in helping mobilize resources to strengthen supply side capacity and trade related infrastructure in most vulnerable economies. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Annabelle. Uh, that's again, um, 
very robust, you know. And it's funny, I mean, when you were analyzing that, I I noticed that trade costs, trade costs, you know, that kept um, coming up. And for many of us who uh, are in the trade policy area, especially in modeling and um, uh, trade generally, you know, you know about the gravity model, right, which is uh, the workhorse, you know, for, for technical work in that area. I, for one, have, have used that a lot and I have a number of, of papers, you know, based on the gravity yeah. model. So, yeah. so you, you talk about uh, trade costs and that in a way takes me to, it leads me to the next question, you know, which is another very critical issue, you know, and that's a digital revolution. You know, the ongoing digitization of the global economy presents both opportunities and challenges, but no doubt, Digital trade is a major enabler of growth in the global digital economy. And we can mention it, I mean, advances in technology and innovation continue to tear down traditional trade barriers like distance and uh, time, the so-called trade cost in gravity modeling that I just uh, alluded to. So digitization is also accelerating the ability of firms, and consumers around the world to connect and trade seamlessly. But we have an elephant in the room and that's the digital divide, particularly the gendered dimension of digital divide. I mean, for digital trade to be inclusive, it is imperative that the digital divide is closed. The question is very direct. What's the WTO doing policy-wise or in terms of uh, programmatic interventions to help manage this uh, elephant in the room? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's a very, very important uh, point, Fred. And you are, you're right to emphasize the importance of closing the digital gender divide to harness the full potential of uh, digital trade. And, uh, you know, I recently came across uh, two studies published by the World Bank uh, Group's International Finance Corporation, which found that closing gender gaps could add almost $15 billion to e-commerce markets in Africa and $280 billion to those in Southeast Asia by 2030. So clearly, tackling the gender uh, digital gap could unlock enormous potential. And action is more important than ever as the pandemic seems to have widened the digital gender divide, at least in some, uh, in some countries. So again, looking at some numbers, because I, I know of course that, uh, that you like this, uh, uh, this information, you know, since the pandemic started, women owned businesses in three African countries experienced a 7% drop in sales compared to a 7% rise in sales for men owned businesses. Uh, in the Philippines, the sales number of women-owned businesses had been higher than those of their male counterparts prior to the pandemic. But then the pandemic came and they fell to 79% of those of men due to the impact of COVID-19. And unfortunately, you know, this finding is consistent with other studies showing that women-owned business, both online and brick and mortar, have been disproportionate, disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So let me go to your question in specific and you say, so. What is needed 
in this area. And I'm going to mention uh, uh, three points which I think are, are critical and then talk a little bit about uh, our work here in the WTO. First is data. Gender disaggregated data and you, is, is critically important to understand better, you know, what hinders the participation of women in digital trade. And you know very well that this is not easy uh, to, uh, to come across. So, so this is one very important point. Also to understand what are the obstacles encountered by women-owned businesses uh, that are already selling uh, in e-commerce platforms. The second point for women is, of course, access to finance. Uh, and this is, you know, the literature, the evidence is, is very clear um, uh, on this. And third, of course, is training uh, in terms of targeted training to women entrepreneurs on how to leverage, you know, advertising and other tools that are available to increase online sales uh, to help reduce the gender uh, digital divide. Now, you know, this must go hand in hand with broader efforts to close not just the gender, but all existing uh, divides, including between urban and rural dwellers, between young and old people. Uh, and here we know that you know the uh, telecommunications infrastructure, a favorable business environment, uh, you know, increased uh, skills and education are all very relevant. Now. There are efforts underway at the WTO that could make, I think, a contribution in some of these areas. For example, there is a group of 86 WTO members right now that is working on global rules for electronic commerce. Uh, we also have an informal working group on trade and gender that has been created to serve as a platform to consider ways in which trade can support women's economic empowerment. And we also have an informal group on micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises, which is exploring ways in which WTO members could better support MSMEs' participation in global trade. So while it's still, you know, there is this is still a pending signature uh, in many ways, I think that there are important efforts, uh, undergoing efforts to try to close this digital gender uh, divide, which, as you said, is absolutely critical uh, to increase uh, incomes uh, for women. Uh, right on, right on. Very well said. You know, uh, in fact, I was going to uh, ask a follow-on question, but I think somehow you you seem to have um, covered that. You know, and that's in the context of uh, extending this specifically to the pandemic. Then, as you well know, I mean. Uh, digital capabilities are vital in the knowledge economy. And in the last two years since the pandemic began, you know, technology has become so important in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, that the impact on those with limited or no access to digital resources can only be imagined. I mean, look at day-to-day -day lives, you know, how technology has moved to the front burner of literally every single thing. You think about online shopping, uh, digital learning platforms, and all that. Again, you touch on the implications for vulnerable groups, you know, women. And I also like the statistics that you captured, you know, the 7% up and down, you know. And I look at how quickly. That's a swing. That's about 14 percentage points, you know. And when you translate that to... Uh, reality, you know, revenues, you know, productivity, that's huge. That's huge, you know. But you, you covered this already, but I'll just let you speak a little bit more on rural dwellers and smallholder farmers. I think 
that's a cohort that, boy, when you think about the digital divide and digitization, digital learning, rural dealers, small border farmers, quickly, what, what do you have to say for those folks? Well, you know, Fred, when we look at the face uh, of poverty uh, uh, across the world, uh, you see that poverty is normally concentrated in a number of areas. It has the face of a woman, it has the face of a rural dweller, uh, and it is also normally someone who is in informality. So um, addressing all of these issues is absolutely critical if you want to have a more inclusive economy. And here I think that you know, digital trade can really be a very powerful tool uh, to incorporate uh, this, this people uh, into, the, you know, uh, into the benefits of trade, uh, providing them uh, the tools to be able to integrate into the global economy. But in order to do that, you know, trade, uh, it, trade policy itself can be very relevant, but it really needs to be complemented by some of these other uh, policies. Uh, and this is, you know, when, when sometimes when thinking about uh, trade, uh, people think, oh, you know, trade has not been able to bring all of these people out of poverty, it has brought a lot of people out of poverty, but still, uh, and with the pandemic, we have seen that, uh, you know, we, we still had uh, some important numbers of people under 10% of the world in, uh, in uh, extreme poverty. Now with the pandemic, unfortunately, does, that number is going up. Um, so the question is, well, what can trade do? I think trade can provide opportunities. Uh, can open, you know, new worlds that were not available to people before. And we have seen this, for instance, in agriculture. We have seen that in many parts of the world, uh, you know, farmers that have access to the internet, for example, and to a mobile phone, uh, can, you know, they can know when it's going to rain or not uh, to be able uh, to plan uh, their, uh, you know, their, their, their uh, planting uh, season. They know what the prices in the market are. So they're better prepared to make a negotiation with the uh, middlemen. So technology can be very powerful, not only to increase productivity, uh, but also to improve the possibility of these farmers to connect to the global economy. Uh, but that, you know, that is one part. But of course, the other part comes back to, you know, do, do countries have the infrastructure that is required? Do they have, you know, the skill set and, uh, uh, you know, have they trained their population in the use of this technology? So uh, for, you know, for a country to look at this, I think it needs to be a, a holistic perspective where, where, you know, trade policy works in tandem with these other policies to actually address the specific limitations that are faced by this group of people if we want to tackle poverty uh, more, more broadly. Uh, excellent, excellent. I, I just couldn't, um, I couldn't agree more. You know, that, um, that's very broad, covers a lot of the dynamics, you know. Let me move on to the next question, you know, which <clears throat> by the way, remains uh, one of the existential threats of this era, you know. And I'm sure you already know where I'm going. You know, I'm talking about the climate crisis. You know, um, a major takeaway from COP26 in Glasgow, uh, Scotland, last year was the consensus. You know, on ambitious 2030 emissions reductions targets to help reach net zero by the middle of the century. Clearly. Trade policy, you know, has a major role in the decarbonization efforts. But in my opinion, 
optimal outcomes are going to be feasible only, only if trade and climate policy platforms are coordinated for synergies. Mm -hmm. And I say that based on uh, work that I've done in the past and the literature, the research, you know, uh, energy policy, trade policy, you find that whether you're doing forecasting or modeling or, 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 mm -hmm. or whatever it is, those are two areas, the nexus between trade and climate. That's a very critical nexus that synergies and coordination, you know, will be very critical in moving the needle. So, so this means international policy responses, you know, to mm -hmm. climate change mm -hmm. do need serious multilateral efforts to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. What do you say? So I think, Fred, that uh, you you made a, a very important point by saying that you know trade policy and climate policy are clearly intertwined. And um, while trade uh, contributes uh, to increase uh, you know in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, it is also a very important tool uh, to address. Um, to address uh, greenhouse emissions. And uh, let, me, let me maybe highlight three ways in which trade policy can play an important role here. First, trade policy can be used to reduce you know, the many barriers that affect trade in climate-friendly goods, services, and technologies. And you know, those barriers range from tariffs to cumbersome procedures, from divergent standards to duplicative testing and other requirements. And trade barriers, uh, at the end of the day, they result in higher prices for climate-friendly solutions, be it you know, solar uh, and wind power equipment to many services that are needed to make such equipment work. So by slashing trade barriers, we encourage producers of climate-friendly goods and services to reap economies of scale, reduce costs, and invest in innovation. And at the same time, you know, we, we can expand access by consumers to high quality and low cost climate solutions. So reducing barriers to trading climate friendly goods and services can be a powerful tool to bring climate solutions to where they're needed the most and to do so uh, quickly, uh, increase the chances that countries everywhere will raise the level of ambition of their climate policy. So that's um, one thing that trade policy can do uh, in support of, uh, of uh, uh, sustainability. A second one is that trade policy can also be deployed to reform subsidies that harm uh, climate. And take, for example, fossil fuel subsidies. Countries around the world currently subsidize fossil fuel production and consumption to the tune of $500 billion. Reforming these subsidies would reduce emissions while freeing public funds to be put to better use not least to just transition and public investments for clean technology infrastructure networks, such as you know, electric vehicle charging stations and power grid extensions to accommodate renewable air energy. So if all countries act together to reform fossil fuel subsidies, that would help reduce carbon emissions while creating a more level playing field. Now, this would need to be done in a just way, of course, because we know that there are a number of countries that are depending on fossil fuel subsidies. And it is very important if this, um, you know, the transition is going to be sustained, uh, that it is be done, that it be done uh, in a just way. And third, let me give you another example of how trade policy can also help reduce uh, trade tensions and fragmentation 
arising from climate-related measures such as carbon uh, border carbon adjustments. We know that some governments have decided to put in place a carbon border adjustment mechanism in response to uh, climate leakage. You know, the EU uh, has announced a proposal, uh, and uh, other countries are, uh, are thinking about that as well. Uh, and designing and implementing effective and efficient carbon border adjustment mechanisms is 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 challenging. So the WTO offers a forum where governments can work together to ensure that this and other uh, climate measures are not used as a backdoor to protectionism. And this is very important uh, because, you know, if it, it is much better to have a conversation around implementation of these measures in the WTO, then they need to, you know, deal with the trade frictions uh, that may arise uh, from, from the implementation of these measures, if not done in a consistent way uh, with the WTO. Now, I'm happy to say here that um, WTO members, uh, several groups of them, have actually launched three initiatives to move forward in this and other areas of trade and environment. And more than 80 members uh, that represent some 85% of global trade, including the US, the European Union, and China, and many developing countries are part of at least one of these three uh, initiatives. So to me, this is a clear signal uh, that countries see trade, trade policy, and the WTO as part of the solution to tackle you know, the mounting climate and environmental challenges that we face. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a lot of um, issues to unpack there, you know, and I want to bring the sector-specific dynamics you know, to this. You talked about $500 billion in subsidies. Whoa, that's a lot. And when you look at that again from the ramification of uh, carbon leakage and all of the associated uh, impact, then you tend to, again, think about what it means for specific sectors. Again, the literature on the synergies and tensions between trade and climate policies is, is robust. I mean, the literature is very robust. Carbon pricing puts energy intensive and trade exposed industries at a competitive disadvantage. The whole notion about EITE, there's a vast uh, literature on, on that. And the disproportionate impact, again, on small, minority and women-owned businesses, the impacts are huge, you know. So I'm just going to let you add on to what you just discussed, you know, but I would like you to look at it from the perspective of carbon leakage. You know, carbon leakage continues to undermine global efforts at reducing GHG emissions. Again, from a WTO perspective, how can trade policy help you know, to fix all of these issues around the EITE industries? You covered part of that already, but maybe, maybe a little bit um, uh, addendum you know, will help us to mm -hmm. wrap that face up. Yeah. So you have said many important uh, things uh, uh, here, Fred. So I, I, I will not repeat some of the points that, that you made, which I, I agree with. Um, let me maybe just add that, uh, you know, a large diversity of, uh, of carbon pricing systems across the world has fueled concerns that companies operating in high 
uh, carbon tax jurisdictions are at disadvantage to competitors elsewhere. And you know, this is a legitimate concern because we do not only want to transition to a net zero emissions economy, but we also want to do it in a way that is uh, just and, uh, and fair. And uh, significant carbon uh, price differentials across countries are a particular concern you know, to energy intensive trade exposed industries, as you say. And you know, typical examples, I think, include aluminum, uh, steel, cement, iron, chemicals, plastics, and refined uh, petroleum. Um, so in thinking you know, about ways to ensure uh, a low carbon and, uh, and just uh, transition, maybe just say a couple of points. Uh, first, uh, carbon pricing may have negative competitiveness effects on energy intensive trade exposed sectors of the economy, but it also has positive competitiveness effects on emerging clean sectors of the economy. So, you know, the empirical literature shows uh, that very small, uh, there is very small impact of uh, carbon pricing on competitiveness, though sometimes this is attributed to the fact that carbon prices remain generally low. That said, it is also important to keep in mind that carbon pricing is just one of the many factors that affect the competitiveness of energy intensive trade exposed sectors. Uh, other factors like, you know, the general business environment, labor costs, trade barriers, exchange rate and others, of course, also um, have an impact. So the, the literature has found that carbon pricing nudges the business sector to find alternatives through green innovation. And this innovation opens huge new opportunities, uh, economic and job opportunities, which may upset uh, you know, the negative competitiveness impacts of a carbon price on energy intensive uh, trade exposed uh, sectors. Let me also say that you know carbon pricing generates uh, revenues, and those revenues can be used to boost the economy and counteract economic harm caused by higher fuel prices to the most vulnerable parts of the population. So this could help build support for an ambitious climate strategy and to promote a, uh, a just transition, including through stronger social safety nets and retraining programs to assist low-income households and vulnerable workers and regions. And these measures would only require a minor portion of carbon pricing revenue, according to calculations uh, by, uh, by the IMF. So, you know, you may wonder, so what's the role of the WTO in, uh, in all of this? And here, you know, in as much as we continue to have, or we will continue to have uh, different uh, carbon prices, uh, it is very important that, you know, to, to build a big tent where carbon pricing uh, coexists with other instruments to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, such as regulations, a, a big tent where countries at different levels of development implement carbon policies of maybe varying le levels of ambition. Um, and the WTO, uh, you know, it can help countries design that uh, big tent. Uh, and it can work with other organizations like the IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, to find common solutions to ensure that divergent carbon pricing approaches do not generate trade frictions between trading partners or instability and unpredictability for business, uh, businesses seeking to decarbonize. Uh, thank you, Annabelle. Thank you. Um, uh, let's, let's move on to the next question as we I gradually wrap this up, you know, a lot of uh, issues, you know, uh, unpacked. Now I want to look at the international 
uh, political economy, you know, you find that much of the blame on the rise of populism, you know, has been directed at globalization. You know, maybe it's more nuanced than that, but simplistically speaking, you know, that's the summary. And when you think about what globalization, uh, the advances in technology and innovations that we've seen in the last two decades, I mean, again, a lot has been written about all of these issues. So the question here is, any ideas on how trade policy can help to reverse the trend in extreme inequality and poverty? Any thoughts and ideas on how these are two pervasive issues can be fixed? I think this, you know, at, at, at addressing this, this point that you make is, is very important because it is at the root, as you rightly said, about populism that we may see in different parts of the world. And here, I, I probably would like to start saying but over, that, uh, you know, over the past three decades, we have seen the potential gains of trade being turned into reality. You know, between 1990 and 2017, developing countries, for example, increased their share in global exports from 16% to 30%, helping to cut the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty from 36% to less than 10%. And this is really uh, an historic uh, achievement, uh, even though some of these hard-won risks have been reversed by the pandemic. Uh, the World Bank estimates suggest that it has pushed uh, nearly 100 million more people into poverty. But the point here is that without the growing participation of developing countries in global trade and sustained efforts to lower barriers to the integration of markets, it is hard to, hard to see how this reduction in poverty could have been achieved. Now, that said, it's clear that while trade brings significant positive economic and social benefits, some people have been left behind by globalization, and there is abundant evidence that the benefits are not always distributed equitably. And all this, of course, has contributed to the uh, growing doubts about globalization, uh, serving as a voter for populist politicians, and you know, we, we, we've talked about this. So to be sure, I think it's also important to say that job losses in certain sectors or regions in advanced economies have resulted to a large extent from technological change uh, rather than from uh, trade. But still, adjustments to trade can bring a human and economic downside that is frequently concentrated and sometimes harshly and has to often become uh, prolonged. Now, it need not be that way. With the right policies, countries can benefit from the opportunities that trade brings and lift up those who have been left behind. For example, easing worker mobility across firms, industries, and regions minimizes adjustment costs and promotes employment. Active labor market policies uh, play an important role in supporting these initiatives. They can foster reemployment, improve worker skills, you know, provide job search assistance, training programs, uh, and others. But beyond labor market policies, you know, education systems need to prepare workers for the changing demands of the modern labor uh, market. And there are other policies, even, you know, housing, credit, uh, infrastructure policies that need to facilitate uh, mobility. So trade policy for its part can contribute to creating an inclusive trading environment. Better policies, for instance, we discussed in e-commerce, 
could help small firms to export. Uh, better policies, uh, better measures on trade facilitation can also help reduce uh, trade costs. We're also thinking about reducing distortions, for example, in agricultural um, trade, uh, where you know it's, it's an area where we still face uh, significant uh, significant distortions. Uh, limiting fishery subsidies, for example, could help secure the livelihoods of people in coastal communities. So there are many things that can be done from the trade perspective and should be done from the trade perspective. But again, I cannot emphasize the importance of domestic policies uh, to make sure uh, that uh, trade can be a, a tool not only to reduce poverty, uh, but also to reduce inequality as well. Yeah, very well said. Very well said, you know, uh, and, and I think um, that again addresses many of the sub issues, you know. And the final uh, question there, or maybe a response, you know, for you to, to wrap things up really is you did mention that the pandemic, you know, has um, put about 100 million, you know, into poverty. That's a lot. That's a lot. And if uh, we look at the, the gains, the achievements, you know, in the last two or three decades, you know, in terms of uh, uh, global dynamics and leveraging technology to, to help uh, vulnerable people, moving 100 million to poverty within a couple of years, I mean, that's, that's massive. And, and that then leads me to the question about innovations, you know, and other uh, incremental um, ideas, you know, that can help to, again, improve the lot of these vulnerable people. So as we wrap up, you know, as we wrap this up, in your opinion, what innovations are required in the global trading system to deliver on inclusive economic growth? broadly speaking? So, you know, Fred, the WTO at the core of the global trading system was created in 1995 to improve living standards, create jobs, and foster sustainable development through greater trade cooperation. And, you know, our Director General, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala, likes to remind us that it's really all about making people's lives better. Uh, and that mission is as important today as it was 25 years ago uh, when it was first uh, conceived. But the global economy and trade have changed dramatically during that uh, period. Um, and, you know, for example, between 2007 and 2017, cross-border data flows increased more than 24. And during that same period, trading services grew 60% faster than goods trade. So there have been many changes in the global economy and the WTO must adapt and respond to these changes if it is going to continue to carry out its mission and do what it does best, which is to provide stability and predictability that businesses across, um, uh, across the world need to thrive and prosper. Now, the good news is that the WTO's 164 members broadly agree on the need to safeguard and reform the WTO, strengthen its core function, and make it fit for the current global trade and investment landscape. And this includes all the larger players, but also the smaller uh, players. Now, of course, as you can imagine, within such a large group, there are also divergences on precisely what should those reforms look like. Does it mean stricter disciplines on industrial subsidies, on agricultural subsidies? Does it mean uh, looking into how to make more effective the WTO dispute settlement mechanism uh, and many other questions? Uh, I, in the meantime, 
you know, some group of members have begun to advance in more flexible settings, innovating and experimenting uh, with, you know, uh, plurilateral negotiations among group of interesting members, for instance, in the area of electronic commerce. And some of these efforts have already started to bear fruit. Um, but it's quite important to remember uh, that continued efforts in this and other areas are critically uh, important to discourage, you know, mutually defeating trade policies to demonstrate that the global economy is underpinned by a system of rules that is even-handed to all, and to foster the creation of a more inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous global economy. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Annabel. That's, uh, that's robust. Um, do you, we are now at the end of uh, this session. Do you have any closing remarks, you know, as we as we bring this to a close, any final thoughts, closing remarks before we uh, round this up? So I maybe would like to say that, you know, the world in which we live is a world that needs to confront a number of global challenges. Uh, the pandemic, uh, for sure, uh, but also climate change uh, and others. And global challenges require global solutions, which is, you know, why uh, trade cooperation in the context of the WTO is so important and it will be in my view even more important uh, in going forward so it, even though you know we face um, uh, a number of you know confrontations among member among countries uh, or you know some protectionist tendencies or some nationalism uh, um, ideas that take root in some places the reality is that trade cooperation is absolutely indispensable in going forward and the WTO, provides the forum, uh, a very important forum to foster trade cooperation. And with that, let me just thank you, Fred. It's been a fantastic conversation. I very much enjoyed uh, your, not only your questions, but your comments. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much, uh, Annabelle, for taking the time to share very useful insights from your decades of work in the global trade and uh, development domain. I look forward to engaging you again on other allied issues, you know, in the trade and uh, development sphere, you know. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast. As discussed, a strong global trading system remains an essential driver of growth and development. And despite the rise of our protectionism and the trade tensions across the world in recent times, the argument for deepening economic integration remains compelling. As we have said already, economic growth and social inclusion need not be mutually exclusive. For development to be sustainable, it has to be inclusive. Thanks again to Annabel Gonzalez, you know, Deputy Director General with the World Trade Organization for joining us. Thanks to the production team for making this episode a reality. I'm Fred O'Leary, and I look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.